This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, your podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This here is episode 174, entitled Maranatha and the Earliest Christology of the Church. I think you'll really like what we have in store for this particular episode. I'm looking forward to exploring a lot of different topics now that our series on Mark's High Human Christology has concluded. In this week's episode, we will look into the often overlooked phrase, Maranatha, to see what it means and what it has to say about early Christian understandings of Christology. Maranatha, which is an Aramaic phrase, is typically translated as, Our Lord, come. Does this title for Jesus, Lord, indicate that the earliest Christians thought he was God? What does the phrase mean in Aramaic, and how were Aramaic-speaking Jews using it in their literature? And what significance should we give to the fact that Paul leaves the Aramaic phrase Maranatha untranslated in his Greek epistle to non-Aramaic-speaking Corinthians? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the meaning of the Aramaic phrase Maranatha. This phrase shows up in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, which is at the conclusion of Paul's correspondence. And 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And so we have this phrase, Maranatha, which is translated into English as, Our Lord, come. It's very important to note that this Lord here is a reference to Jesus. It's not a reference to God. Nine times out of ten, when Paul uses the phrase Lord, he is referring to the Lord Jesus, not to the Lord God. Now, the Aramaic phrase remains untranslated in this Greek epistle. And this indicates that it was valued highly to the point to where it was retained and shared in its original language, even among people who didn't know and understand Aramaic. And this is even more striking when we realize that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in Greek, and there's no indication that the majority of his readers knew Aramaic. It was understood that this phrase, Maranatha, which was not unpacked or explained in 1 Corinthians, was fully understood by Paul and his readers. Paul took it for granted that he could say the Aramaic phrase, Maranatha and his non-Aramaic speaking readers would know and understand what it means. Now, since the phrase is in Aramaic, it is unlikely to be something that Paul himself coined. 
this was a phrase that was pre-Pauline. It was coined before Pauline theology took its shape. So, question we could ask is, who originated the phrase Maranatha? I think the answer is that it was pretty likely to be the Jerusalem church, which was the first community of believers in Jesus as Messiah and in Jesus' death and resurrection. And we can also note in the phrase that the hope for the return of Jesus to consummate the kingdom was present within this prayer. Not only are they regarding Jesus as Lord, and not only is it included in prayer language, but the petition is for the Lord to come, to come back, indicating the second coming. Now, we talked about how Maranatha is retained in its Aramaic form, but this is not the only Aramaic phrase that was treasured by the early church. There are a lot of sayings of Jesus that Jesus said in Aramaic when he spoke them, that were retained in their Aramaic form, even in Greek-speaking locations and works of literature. So we know that Jesus prayed to God as Abba, according to Mark 14, and Paul shows evidence that this way of addressing God as Abba Father continued on in his churches. You can see this in Galatians 4 and in Romans chapter 8. And the reason why that phrase was retained in its Aramaic form was because it was highly valued and treasured to the point that it stayed in its original language. We also know that in Mark 15.34, Jesus cried out on the cross saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is actually an Aramaic translation of the original Hebrew of Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus cried this out in Aramaic, and it was retained in Aramaic, despite the fact that the Gospel of Mark was written in Greek. Furthermore, when Jesus raised a little girl back to life, he said in Aramaic, Talitha kum. This occurs in Mark 5, verse 41, and Talitha kum is Aramaic, which means little girl, rise. This phrase was memorable to the early church, and it was treasured, retained, and shared in its original Aramaic form. So the early church deeply treasured and valued certain Aramaic phrases, and Maranatha, which was coined by believers who spoke Aramaic, is no exception. Now, from a very early stage, even before the development of Paul's Christian theology, the early Christians, whose primary language was Aramaic, as we could see in our Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, they were describing Jesus as Lord. But I think it's good for us to break apart the phrase Maranatha for those listeners of the podcast who didn't have the opportunity to take biblical Aramaic in grad school. What does this phrase mean? Well, Maranatha is an English rendering of two Aramaic words. We have the word mar, which is the Aramaic noun for Lord or Master. Now there's a Aramaic suffix at the end of mar, the suffix ana, 
and the suffix ana is the first person plural suffix. So the Lord, who is Mar, becomes our Lord. So there we have Mar Ana. And at the end of the phrase, we have a verb, the verb Tha, which is probably the imperative form of the verb to come. So we have Mar, the noun for Lord. We have the suffix, meaning first person plural, our Lord. And then we have the verb, which is an imperative, which tells that Lord to come. And we can note in the phrase Maranatha that these earliest Aramaic-speaking Christians were actually praying to Jesus. Jesus is the recipient of this prayer and petition. They called him Lord with the noun Mar, and in their prayer, they are looking forward to his second coming. It's actually a lot of information we can get about the earliest Christians prior to the theology of Paul. And this is why I think the phrase Maranatha is so fascinating when trying to understand the earliest theology of Christians. Now, it's really popular for interpreters of the Bible to highly value a Hebraic mindset of the early Christians rather than a Greek mindset. I hear this a lot. I hear interpreters say, oh, we need to get back and understand the New Testament in its Hebrew mindset, in its Hebraic mindset, and to avoid reading it in light of a Greek philosophical mindset. And I contend that for at least this study, both of these are wrong. It is not the Hebraic mindset that is important. It's not the Greek mindset that's important. It's actually the Aramaic mindset that needs attention when attempting to understand the significance of the phrase Maranatha. And in fact, the phrase Maranatha continues to appear in its untranslated Aramaic form on into the second century in the Christian work that is called the Didache, which is written in Greek, and it retains the phrase Maranatha in chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. And this indicates that the deeply valued and highly treasured Aramaic phrase Maranatha continued to be influential long after Paul died, on into the second century. And it's written in the Didache without any sort of unpacking or explanation, as if the author expected his readers to understand what the Aramaic phrase means. Now, there are many scholars in the EHCC, that's the Early High Christology Club, and these scholars point to the fact that Paul regards Jesus as Kyrios. Kyrios is the Greek noun for Lord, and these scholars note that Kyrios is the noun in the Septuagint used to translate Yahweh, translates the divine name of Israel's God. And so the argument is made by these members of the early high Christology club that Jesus being called Kyrios by Paul could very well imply that Paul thought that Jesus was Yahweh. And the argument is more forceful when Paul cites Yahweh passages from the Old Testament and puts Jesus as the Lord, the Kyrios, who was formerly Yahweh in that quoted passage. 
like in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And this all plays upon the fact that the Greek noun kurios is widely acknowledged to be ambiguous. Kurios could refer to Yahweh. It could also refer to an exalted Lord. It could refer to a master. It could be a way of calling someone sir in a very polite way. And the reasons to be careful about how we interpret the meaning of curios when it's used in regard to Jesus involve the fact that the word could mean so many different things. It's not altogether clear that when Jesus is called Lord by Paul in Greek, that he was regarding Jesus as Yahweh. But the ambiguity exists, and there are many scholars that think that it's likely that Paul regards Jesus as Yahweh from the Greek noun kurios. However, when we look at the Aramaic noun mar, which means Lord, and which was the earliest expression of Jesus' lordship in Christian theology, which even predates the Greek use of kurios for Jesus, what might this tell us about how the believers understood Jesus? How was the word mar used by Aramaic-speaking Jews during the time of early Christianity? Now, the noun mar does not appear in the Aramaic portions of the Old Testament. Otherwise, it would be very easy for us to go and to look up what the word meant and to see how it's used here of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And it's interesting that the noun mar not appearing in the Hebrew Bible in the Aramaic sections of the Old Testament indicates at least at some point, that it wasn't used to biblically define the God of Israel. Israel's God is described thousands of times in the Old Testament, especially in the Aramaic sections, but the noun mar is not used to describe Israel's God within the Hebrew Bible. The place to find Aramaic writings in which mar appears is by looking at the Jewish Targums. Now, what are Jewish Targums? Targums are Aramaic translations of the Hebrew scriptures that were read as interpretations alongside the Hebrew within liturgical synagogue settings. So in their synagogue, they would have their liturgy, they would have their reading from the Torah or from the prophets or from the Psalms, and they would read it in Hebrew, and then this Aramaic Targumic translation, which is also an interpretation of what the Hebrew meant, was read alongside the Hebrew. And these Targums are the written collections of these Aramaic translations. And the noun Mar appears in these Targums, and so that is going to be where we focus our attention on trying to define this word and to see what it would have meant within the early Christian culture. This moves us to our second point. Point number two, which is the Aramaic Targums and the meaning of Mar. What meaning was ascribed to the Aramaic noun Mar? And does its meaning shed any light on what early Christians meant 
when they regarded Jesus as Mar in the phrase Maranatha. So we're going to look at two very important Targums. The first one is Targum Onkelos. Onkelos was a Aramaic-speaking Jew who lived from the years 35 all the way into 120 AD. And his Targum was likely written in the early part of the second century. This is actually the argument from the Babylonian Talmud itself. And of course, if Onkelos was living primarily in the first century, but writing his Targum in the second century, then he's drawing on many of his Jewish understandings from the first century. Now, Targum Onkelos is a Targum on the Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And Targum Onkelos was considered highly authoritative in Judaism. This is not some fringe Jewish work that was written off that was only read by a few monks off in a cave. This was a highly authoritative document within Judaism. And when we look at Targum Onkelos, and we look at the divine name Yahweh, as it's translated into Aramaic, we note some very interesting points. We note that the divine name is not translated letter for letter from Hebrew into the Aramaic Targum. There is a sense of respect for the divine name Yahweh to the point to where it's just translated with the letters Yod, Vav, Yod. It's almost a way of not even saying all of the letters in the divine name. It's just a shortening of it out of respect for God. But Mar, the noun for Lord in Aramaic, is not used to interpret the divine name in Targum Onkelos. In fact, in Targum Onkelos, the noun Mar is never used to interpret Yahweh, the divine name. The author of Targum Onkelos did not think that the noun Mar, which is the noun for Lord, could be used to refer to Yahweh. This is very, very important. But Mar does appear in Targum Onkelos. Where does it show up and what sort of meaning is given to it? I'll give you some examples. Here's one example. It is used in Exodus 21, verse 8. In Exodus 21, verse 8, we have a human master of a servant girl. And the human master is described as Mar. What does Mar mean here? Well, it refers to a human lord, a human master. He is a master that has servants. Now, in the original Hebrew of Exodus 21, verse 8, the word for this master is Adon which is the word for Lord. And even the Septuagint translates Exodus 21, verse 8, as kurios. But it's a human master, and so it is described as Mar. That's very interesting. Here's another passage where Mar shows up in Targamonkelos. In translating Deuteronomy 1.13, which says, Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. This phrase here, which is experienced men that are appointed as the heads of the people, this phrase for experienced men is described as mar. 
these men that are the leaders and the heads of the people, that's someone that was described with the Aramaic phrase mar. They are leaders of their people. A few verses later, in Deuteronomy 1.15, we can see the passage saying, So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds and fifties and tens, and officers of your tribes. So again, this phrase, experienced men, was translated in the Aramaic Targum with the noun mar. What is mar in Deuteronomy 1.15? Well, it's a officer of the tribe. It is an experienced person who is the leader of this group of people. So in all of these references, mar refers to human superiors, human masters. You could call them lord in the sense of a human superior. But in Targum Onkelos, mar, the noun for lord, is never once used to translate the divine name. Let's move on to a different Targum. This time we will look at Targum Neophyti. Targum Neophyti is another Targum on the Torah, like Onkelos. But Neophyti was the largest of the Torah Targums in the sense of the amount of words that are used to interpret and explain the original Hebrew. Now, while Targum Onkelos was written in a Babylonian Aramaic, Targum Neophyti was written in Palestinian Aramaic. And this Targum was also likely written in the 2nd century AD. Now, when we look at places where the divine name was used, where Yahweh shows up, Targum Neophyti usually abbreviates the divine name with three yods. It will just say Yod, Yod, Yod to refer to the divine name in this Aramaic translation. It's another indication that respect and reverence is being used for the divine name. Sometimes we find the divine name being anthropomorphized with the phrase, the word of the Lord. And in Aramaic, it's the Mimra of not yod Hey vav Hey for Yahweh, but the Mimra of these three short letters, Yod, Yod, Yod. And there's also rare cases where the divine name is interpreted in the Targum as, quote, the honor of the Shekinah of the Lord. But Lord there is Yod, Yod, Yod. You could find this like in the Aramaic translation in Neophyti of Genesis 11, verse 5, where it says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, came down to see the city and the tower that the men had built. But when Neophyti translates the divine name, he translates it as the honor of the Shekinah of the Lord. And of course, Lord there in that passage is Yod, Yod, Yod. So like Targum Onkelos, Targum Neophyti does not use the Aramaic noun mar, which is the word for Lord, to translate the divine name Yahweh. Nowhere does Targum Neophyti use the noun mar to translate God's personal name. But where does mar show up? Well, we can see mar showing up in a variety of places. Let's kind of see how it is used 
in Targum Neophyti. Here's a passage, Genesis 25, verse 27, which describes Esau as a skillful hunter and a man of the field. The Aramaic noun mar is used in the Targum in the description of Esau as, quote, the man of the field. Esau is the lord of the field. He is the master of the field. But it's used of Esau to demonstrate his lordship over this location of land. Moving on, the Aramaic noun mar also appears in Genesis 37, verse 19, where Joseph's brothers mock him and call him a dreamer. Now, in the original Hebrew of Genesis 37, verse 19, the phrase dreamer is more literally translated as the master of dreams, using the Hebrew noun Baal for master. So Joseph is a master of dreams. But Targum Neophyti uses the Aramaic noun mar, the word for lord, to translate this word for master. So Joseph is the mar, the lord of dreams, the master of dreams. But it gets translated generally in English as the dreamer. So mar is used to refer to another human being, to refer to Joseph, due to his superiority over dreams. Moving on, in Genesis 46, verse 32, there are human shepherds described as the keepers of livestock. This word for keepers, according to the Aramaic Targum, is masters, using the noun mar. They are the masters of the livestock. So mar is used here in the sense of masters referring to human shepherds. One last example in Exodus 21, verse 34, where the master of a pit in which an ox or a donkey falls is held liable for this sad mistake. But the master of the pit is described with the Aramaic noun mar. He is the mar of the pit. He is the lord of the pit. He is the owner of this pit. Originally in Hebrew, this word for master was Baal, and interestingly enough, the Septuagint translates this master as the lord, as Okurios. So we got a lot of interesting pieces of evidence here to help us see what mar meant by Aramaic-speaking Jews, how mar was used to translate certain words into Aramaic and where Mar was not used. So let's draw some conclusion based on what we have observed. The Aramaic phrase Maranatha, which Paul records at the end of 1 Corinthians, has much to reveal about how early Christians understood the person of Jesus Christ. We first noted that the phrase our Lord come, was passed on in its original Aramaic, without translating it into Greek. The fact that Paul uses this term in his otherwise Greek epistle to Greek-speaking Corinthians, and the second-century author of the Didache continued to use it in his Greek composition, indicates 
that the phrase was valued and treasured from its earliest inception. Since Maranatha is Aramaic, the phrase almost certainly predated Paul, and it was likely coined by the earliest Aramaic-speaking Christians, arguably those residing in the Jerusalem church. We also noted that the phrase indicates that prayer language was already being used by early Christians with Jesus as the recipient. The fact that Paul is able to recite Maranatha without explanation suggests that this practice was well established and taken for granted. Moreover, the hope of Jesus' return was deeply held and prayed for with the petition to come, prayed for in the phrase Maranatha. Most importantly, the Aramaic noun mar, which refers to someone who is Lord, was used to describe Jesus, indicating an importance tied to his person and role. When we examined how the two arguably earliest Aramaic Targums used the noun mar, we noted some crucially important data. When it came to translating Yahweh, the divine name for Israel's God, from Hebrew into Aramaic, the typical Targumic practice was to treat this name with reverence by shortening the spelling and not even using the exact letters. However, the Aramaic noun Mar was never used to translate the divine name. When Mar did appear, it was used flexibly for high-ranking human beings, human lords of servants, leaders of the people, masters of the field, in regard to Joseph as a master of dreaming, of keepers of livestock, and owners of pieces of land. It appears that when the earliest Aramaic-speaking Christians called Jesus Mar, they were using a noun that indicated that Jesus was a high-ranking human superior, a master even. But they were not referring to Jesus in a way that Yahweh was regarded. In sum, while the Greek word kurios was widely flexible and used to translate the divine name as well as human masters, the earlier Aramaic word mar did not possess that ambiguity. The phrase Maranatha regarded Jesus as someone who could not be confused with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we explore the question, was Jesus Christ a monotheist? We'll look at what Jesus thought about Israel's God and the worship practices of Jesus. Please look forward to this next episode. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote these important truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You may check out the episode's description for a link to donate. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. 
Until next time, you folks, please take care.